0: Psalm 93. We'll read the entire chapter, starting in verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Well, let's pray. Our great God, we come, we gather this evening to worship you The living and true God. We come to bow our minds, our hearts, our souls, all that we have in us before you. You are the only one who is worthy of our worship, the only one who has sought us out, the only one who has bought us, paid the price of redemption, the only one who by being our creator and we your creature should come And render to you all that we have and all that we are. We ask that tonight you would give us grace to look long into your word. To look long at this Lord who reigns over all things. It's so easy for us on a Wednesday night to look into your word. To read some verses, to sing a hymn, to listen to someone speak. And as soon as the amen is over, to be concerned about the other things that happened earlier today or the things that will happen later tonight or tomorrow. We ask that you would give us grace to have a single mind, a vibrant mind tonight. Invade our little meeting with your word, by your spirit. Give us grace to have open ears to hear. Give us grace to have hearts that are opened to receive all that you have and to love what you have to give us. You are the giver of every good and perfect gift. Help us to not see anything that we read or look at tonight in Psalm 93 as optional. God, you put it in your book for us to know, to know about you, to know about ourselves, to know how to live before your face. Oh God, have mercy on us in Christ. We ask it in His name. Amen. Well, the Psalms are the hymn book for the covenant people of God. The Psalms, they contain a wide range of situations, of emotions, and of outcomes. But ultimately, the Psalms are about one person. They are about the living and true God. They're written so as to reveal Him in His person and in His work. We come to the Psalms tonight not to read about a God of our own imaginations or to read about the God of David's or Asaph's or any other uh, Psalm writer's imagination. We come to read about, we come to learn about the God who is the living and true God. In Psalm 93, we have a picture of the living and true God. He reveals his character to us. He specifically reveals his person and his reign and his rule. In these five short verses in Psalm 93, the psalmist very densely encapsulates those realities. So it's by the Lord's grace that we will look at that tonight. So first, I want us to look at his person. Let's look at the Lord himself. We read in verse one, those first two words, the Lord. A wise man once said, words mean things. Well, the word Lord means something. It explains the character and nature of our God. Its meaning sets the tone for the rest of Psalm 93. It begins to unlock for us the true identity of the one who reigns, of the one who presides over the floods, of the one who rules his house in holiness forevermore. Without this word, Lord, and without understanding its meaning, we can't truly grasp what follows. It won't carry the weight that it ought to. So Lord, it's a Bible word. We say it often, but what does it mean? What does it tell us about our God? Well, in brief, it tells us this: It tells us that He is eternal God, that He is ever, from everlasting to everlasting. It tells us that He is faithful, that He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. He always keeps his promises. It tells us that He is self-sufficient. He has no need of anyone or anything else. He is his own supply. He gives himself what he needs. No other needs to provide for him. And finally, this word, Lord, tells us that he is the covenant God of Israel. That he is the God who, in pure grace, sought out Israel. When Israel was yet in a pagan land, Worshipping idols. This Lord sought Israel out. And said to Israel. While Israel was wallowing in its blood. Live. And so Israel became a nation unto God. So the Lord. Eternal. Faithful. Self-sufficient. He is the covenant God of Israel. He reigns. That is who the psalmist says reigns. The psalmist is out with it in three words. The Lord reigns. This is a statement of fact. It's a statement of reality. Undeniable, inescapable reality, the psalmist writes. The Lord is reigning. To parse it out a little more, when we say the Lord reigns, We're saying this, that he is presently, that he is actively exercising supreme power and authority. He's exercising supreme power and authority in all places at all times. He's doing it in heaven, he's doing it on earth. He's done so in the past, he's doing so presently, and he will continue to do so on into the endless ages of eternity. He reigns. But the psalmist then describes how the Lord reigns. It isn't enough just to say He reigns. Throw out that kind of indiscriminate description. If we're going to be good Bereans, so to speak, we want to know how this Lord This eternal, faithful, self-sufficient, covenant God of Israel. How does he reign? How does he rule? Well, in verse 1, the psalmist writes, He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. So, the psalmist describes the Lord as reigning in majesty and strength. So first... The Lord reigns in majesty. This describes him being clothed. It's his garment. Wherever you see him, there you see majesty. Whatever activity, whether it's speaking or acting, it is a majestic word. It is a majestic action. And that word majesty, it alludes to uh, loftiness or exaltedness. And Actually, the picture is that of a a swelling sea. It's that of a rising column of smoke. It's, you picture in your mind for a moment with that uh, swelling sea. Um, A few TV shows and movies came to my mind. If you've ever watched The Deadliest Catch, these men are out in the open ocean and they are in turbulent waters often. The sea is frothing. It's wave after wave, piling on, pummeling their ship. Some of them have lost their life in this show. But we see there, maybe not in that show, think of um, maybe a, a movie you've seen, like The Perfect Storm. In that scene, when the storm is built up and it is brewed as tall as it could get, I mean, it's unfathomable how big the wave came that crashed over on this little boat and ended these men's lives, but when we see something like that, a wave that big, a sea that turbulent, it doesn't just leave us neutral. At least it doesn't leave me neutral. There's some sort of visceral response. I feel small. You feel danger. You feel awe with the rising column of smoke. Think of the bonfire at the McCoy cookout, all right? That's the first thing that came to my mind. In years past, Trey has outdone himself and created this monster of a bonfire that when it goes up, it's breathtaking. Can I say that, Trey? Trey appreciates it. It's a breathtaking bonfire, buddy, all right? It's massive. And that creates some sense of awe and wonder But think of something else like a a volcano eruption, like Mount St. Helens. There's footage of that eruption in 1979 or 80, somewhere in there, and it is super massive, jaw-dropping, astonishing that the earth erupted in that way. And the destruction and the devastation after it, it has earned that um, awe and wonder. 86. Okay, good, good. I was waiting on Davis to say that, so I'm glad somebody did, all right? But you get the picture, this swelling sea, this rising column of smoke. The idea here in God being robed in, or the Lord being robed in majesty, is that he's exalted. He's to be seen with grandeur. He appears in royal dignity It is supposed to cause our jaws to drop, our breath to be taken away, for us to be stunned at this person. He's the Lord, he is majestic. But the psalmist also tells us that he puts on strength or that he is strong. The picture is that of a worker who's about to start a task, and he picks up his robes, he stuffs it into his belt so that he's ready for the task and he begins his task. But the idea here is also that when God puts on strength, all that he determines to do by his own strength, he does. He never fails to do anything that he sets himself to do. And he relies on no other supply in order to fuel him to carry out his task. Think of a a young man He's young, he's strong. He's able to do practically anything and everything that he sets his mind to. But then, as the story goes, after decades, he is now an old man, right? Gray hair, withered. His strength has left him. He is not able to do all that he sets out to do and wants to accomplish. But what about another young man He sets out on a business venture, right, has all these great plans, all these goals before him, and he is all in. He's determined. But about halfway through, a few years into this business venture, he gases out. He's ran on fumes for a while, and he's done. His goal that he set out for, he's not met. He's given up. It's over. That cannot be said of the Lord. He doesn't wither and grow weary. He doesn't start to do something and then gasses out, runs on fumes and has to stop. He is strong. He is a laborer and in his own strength he completes all that he sets himself to do. So the Lord reigns. The Lord reigns in majesty and strength but the Lord also reigns Eternally, your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. That is, our Lord, the Lord, is from all eternity. He has no beginning. He will have no end. He simply always has been. And he forever will be. He's before all time. And he's unaffected by the passage of time. And he's not limited by our constraints of space and time. As he is eternal, so is his throne. As he is, so is his rule. He reigns from all eternity. His reign has no beginning. His reign has no end. He simply always has reigned. And he will reign forever. His reign is before all time. And His reign is unaffected by the passage of time and not limited by time and space. Believer, that is your covenant, Lord. That is your Creator. You have every reason to rejoice this evening. But as we move on, I want us to focus in. Because we could say of the Lord. That's true of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But I want us to focus in on the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. I want us to focus in on Jesus of Nazareth. Listen to these statements about Jesus reigning. In John chapter 17, verse 2, we read in the high priestly prayer where Jesus says to the Father, You have given me authority over all flesh. Every man, woman, and child to ever exist and that will ever exist is under his authority. Matthew 28 verse 18, Jesus is commissioning his disciples to go forth and preach the gospel. And he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So not just authority over all flesh on this earth, but all authority in heaven and on earth. This is an all-encompassing authority. Jesus reigns over all without exception. Then we read in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet and given him as head over all things to the church. Our Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, he reigns over all things without exception. So Jesus reigns, but we also see that Jesus is majestic. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 20. We read that Jesus was raised up from the dead on the third day and that he is now seated at the right hand of God in the heavenly places. He's enthroned in majesty presently as the seconds tick on as life goes by until we see him face to face. He is enthroned the radiance of glory. Not only is Jesus majestic, but He is strong. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, we read that it was through Jesus that the worlds were created. Verse 3, we read that this Jesus upholds the universe by the word of His power. Paul describes this in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18. And he says of Jesus, By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. That is our Jesus. But Not only that, he's everlasting. In the beginning was the Word, this Jesus. And Jesus was with God the Father, with him face to face. And this Jesus was God, co eternal, co equal. John chapter 8, verse 58 Jesus, before the Pharisees, has the audacity to speak these words before them Before Abraham was, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. A clear uh, volley back to Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. When Moses and Aaron are feeling the weight of going to Pharaoh and pleading for the people of God to be brought out, delivered by them. And these men say, God, who are we to say is sending us to be the deliverer? And the Lord Of Psalm 93 says, Tell them that the I Am has sent you to me. Jesus clearly saying He is co eternal, co equal with the I Am. Believer, this is your covenant Lord, the one who by faith you are united to, in uh, unalterably united to. So, with all these realities, with all this truth behind our Lord and more specifically our Jesus, what are we to do with this? Well, I think the thing that we must do is what um, what Chuck has told me to do with sermons. All right, always have one in your back pocket, ready. Now, how do you do that with? these realities, these truths? How can what I just described to you about the Lord, more specifically about Jesus, be back pocket theology, ready? The only way that that will happen is first for you to love the Lord that was just described. Love Him. Desire Him. Seek to be with Him In the word and prayer. Make everything about your life. Unite all your faculties in this. The seeking of his face. And the keeping on seeking of his face. Until you find him. The daily going over words like I just gave to you. Mulling over them. Day and night. Not necessarily all day and all night, but when you have time. We all make time for what we desire. We all make time for the things that we really want. May we pray that the Lord would give us hearts that want Him, that desire Him, so that all that I've just described to you about this Lord would be a back pocket theology, so to speak, so that you're ready to bring it to mind, ready to talk about it, This back pocket theology comes in handy, so to speak, and I don't mean that in a cheap, trite way. How many times have you meditated on a verse of Scripture or memorized a verse of Scripture, and right when you needed it, whether it was personally, you were alone, or you're in front of someone, and the Spirit just drops it right in front of you. Here's the word that you need for yourself right now. Here's the word that you need for this person or this situation. What have you? So it's not just for you, though you need to preach these things to yourself, it's for your husband, for your wife, for your children, for your extended family, for your fellow church member, for your coworker, for everyone else that you might meet. Well, we see there in verses 1 and 2, the Lord now, turning to verses 3 and 4, we see the floods. The first thing that I want to point out it seems fairly obvious, but I want to say it anyway the floods exist. The floods exist. We read in verses 3 and 4 the floods, the floods, the floods, many waters, the waves of the sea. Five times the psalmist brings this to our attention. These floods exist. They are an undeniable and inescapable reality. But what does a psalmist mean? I mean is he just waves of the sea? Is that, is that really what he's talking about? Well, the floods that are being mentioned here in Psalm 93, they're actually references to world powers, references to kings and rulers of the earth that seek to take counsel against the Lord and his people. The possible world powers that are in view for Psalm 93: it could be Assyria, it could be Babylon, could be Egypt, in any one of the nations that rose up and sought to snuff out the people of God, sought to snuff out the name of God on the earth. It could be any one of them. And the psalmist wants the people of God, as they take this hymn and sing it, they want he wants the people to be. Clearly aware of this. These floods exist. But they don't only exist. They don't just stop there with their existence. The floods lift up. They lift up their voice. They roar at the Lord and His people. They act. And they act with military strategy and might. The nations mentioned above They would mobilize and they would seek to storm the gates of the nation of Israel and seek to get um, to the citadel, to the headquarters of the people, to Jerusalem, to Zion. They seek to attack with vicious brutality and secure a decisive victory. But the psalmist spells out the end of their conquest. In verse 4, we read about the Lord described in verses 1 and 2. Mightier than the thunders of many waters, mightier than the waves of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. This Lord governs the floods. He is over all those frothing waves, those violent breakers, but He is more mighty than them. These nations that threaten to overthrow Israel threatened to snuff out the name of God upon the earth. He is mightier than them all. They can come no further than He permits them to come. They stop when and where He commands. As we read in Luke chapter 1 this past Sunday, this Lord, He scatters the proud in the thoughts of their hearts, and He brings down the mighty from their thrones. Though the nations come with military strategy, though they come with vicious brutality, their efforts are of no effect whatsoever. Really, truly. In the end, all of their labor and their toil is futile. It comes to nothing. They are fully and finally subdued under the feet of this Lord. Well, what about us? We read in Ephesians chapter 6 that we don't wrestle merely against flesh and blood. Paul writes, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We see this playing out in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the early church, in the Protestant Reformation. Think even to the last hundred years of world history. Look at Mao Zedong's China. Look at Joseph Stalin's Russia. Look at Adolf Hitler's Germany. We see in all of those instances, the church, the kingdom of God, the seed of the woman has always been at war, wrestling with many different kinds of floods, nations, and enemies. These floods rage. These these nations rage. They seek to overthrow God and His kingdom. But they do not prevail. They do not hinder the progress of the church, the kingdom of God. Listen to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The prophet writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold There the prophet describes Jesus' kingdom. It's a universal, eternal, and indestructible kingdom. Believer, you are a part of that kingdom that can never pass away, that can never be overthrown. You can never pass away in him. You can never be overthrown, lost forever forever. This kingdom He has forever, and He has you forever. Reckon this as a reality, because it is reality. Praise your Lord for this reality. Even in the midst of this great flood that I've, just, I've described, really, in the entirety of this book we call the Bible, and all of church history, even up until this very moment, The floods come, the nations rage. Is there comfort at any place for the people of God? The answer is yes. There is comfort for the church, for the kingdom of God during the raging attacks, the raging floods. We read verses like Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. We read these words. The Lord your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Jesus is in the midst of his people, mightily saving them, gladly rejoicing over them, quieting them by his love in the midst of great flame and trial, and loudly singing over them with the greatest of delight. Believer, reckon this as reality because it is reality. Praise the Lord. You might say to me at this point, okay, that's great to talk about the big C church, the big K kingdom of God. It's wonderful that the church, the kingdom of God will never fail. It will never come to pass or be overthrown. But what about the individual? It's wonderful that the corporate body of Christ is is mentioned, that you mention it right now, but what about me? What about me? The floods of life aren't the nations necessarily, but they are unnerving, all-encompassing, and ongoing, seemingly without end. They can be, and they are unnerving, all-encompassing, and ongoing in areas of life, like your marriage, your children, other relationships you have, your job, your spiritual condition, your physical condition. The list could go on and on. Think of a flood, of a raging swell that comes to you often or daily. These situations cause you to cry out like David in Psalm 69. He says, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. Deliver me from sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up. Or the pit close its mouth over me? Have the floods ever made you feel like that, believer? Perhaps they cause you to cry out like the disciples in Mark chapter 4, verse 38. The water is filling the boat and they come to Jesus to wake him and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Do the floods of life come to you? The struggles and trials of life come to you and you wonder if this Jesus even cares about you? If he even knows you exist? Well, to the praise of his glorious grace, Jesus does not leave his people there in that heap. He didn't leave David there in Psalm 69. And he didn't leave his disciples there in Mark 4. For David and the disciples, there was rescue. There was a subsiding of the floods. And the same is true for us today. Jesus acts on our behalf. Listen to the words that Mark goes on to write in verses 39 through 41. And he awoke, that is Jesus, and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, peace He speaks mightily over the wind and the sea. Be still, literally be muzzled, close your mouth, speak no more. The peace be still doesn't often come when and how we think it should, but it does come. He purposes, He wills that it will come. And so we can trust with all of our heart, we can bank our life, temporal and eternal, on that reality. Remember, believer, every flood, every storm has another side to it. In this life or in the one to come, rest assured, the other side will come. And all that I've just described, this prevailing of the kingdom this other side of the shore is due to the fact that Jesus faced a flood far greater than the waves that he saw that day at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus of Nazareth faced down the flood of God's wrath. On the cross of Calvary, the floods lifted up They lifted up their voice. They lifted up their roaring, their condemnation against Jesus. Earthly speaking, the floods that came against Jesus were the nation of Israel. Crucify Him. Crucify Him. Let the blood, our blood, and the blood of our children be on Him. Or let His blood be on us. It was the Roman Empire. They nailed him to that tree. But speaking divinely, the floods that came against Jesus were from his Father in perfect holiness and justice. He who knew no sin became sin and thereby earned the wrath of his Father. On the cross of Calvary, God's wrath was Jesus' undeniable, inescapable reality. Jesus was forsaken by His Father on that cross. He was drowned in the ocean of His Father's wrath. However, on the cross, Jesus drank down that entire ocean of His Father's wrath. He drank down every last drop so that His people would never have to taste one single drop, either now or forever. He drank down every last drop so that His people could swim in the wide open ocean of God's free grace and love, both now and forevermore. In that act, that selfless act of the God-man there on the cross. Sinners like you and I could be brought near to the living and true God, to the one who is majestic and mighty, to the eternal one. We could be brought near and worship Him because of what He's done, brought in as a family member. Well, Third and last, verse 5, we see the Lord's rule. We read in verse 5, Your decrees are very trustworthy. The way the psalmist uses the word decrees here is all encompassing. So sometimes when we hear the word decrees, In the Bible or in theology, we think of predestination or election, God's eternal decree. But the Hebrew word and the way that the translators decided to translate it points to uh, this word decrees is more, like I said, all encompassing. So it includes all that God has spoken, whether it's his law, his promises, his commands or his prophecies. All of it is pictured here. It's this word, it's with this word that he governs his kingdom. This word that is faithful and true. This word that can be completely trusted. His decrees are very trustworthy. But we also see that his house is holy. Ending out verse 5, we read, Your, excuse me, holiness befits your house. O Lord, forevermore. Holiness is natural in the house of the Lord because He is essentially holy. His house couldn't be any other way. It wouldn't be His house if it were anything else. Holiness is natural as well in the people of God because we belong to Him. We wear His name. He's given us, in a sense, His Nature. And holiness is natural in us because we worship Him. As we worship Him, we know this, we become like what we worship. So as we are in His house, as we are before Him in His word and in prayer and in the fellowship of the saints, worshiping Him, we become more like Him. And that holiness, says the psalmist, is always appropriate in the house of God, among the people of God. It never goes out of style. It's always the appropriate behavior of the people who call themselves the people of God, Christians. Well, consider Jesus' word. Consider Him and all that he said, all that we have recorded here in the pages of the New Testament in our Bibles. His word is like him. It's faithful and true. His word is unlike any other word. You remember the officer in John chapter 7? He says to the Pharisees, no one ever spoke like this man and all who are in Christ tonight can testify to that reality no one has ever spoken to us like Jesus speaks to us he speaks authoritatively think of his words there in Matthew 7 or excuse me Matthew 5 through 7 the sermon on the mount and as he's finished these words are written about his teaching he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as the scribes He said, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He carves it in stone. He rewrites and corrects what was false. His word is life-giving. Do you remember in John chapter 6 when he speaks those very hard words about eating his flesh and drinking his blood? And the people who had followed him up until that point found it to be a hard saying. Jesus says to his disciples, or excuse me, Simon Peter says to the Lord after he basically calls him on the carpet and says, are you going to leave too? Are you going to find this hard and leave me as well? But Simon Peter answers him and says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He said just a chapter earlier in in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. This one does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. His word is life-giving to all who have ears to hear. His word must be obeyed. Twice in Luke 13, verses 1 through 5, he says to the crowd of Galileans, I tell you, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. His words are life giving, but he gives a proper warning to those that his words fall on. He says in John chapter 8, verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. His word warns. His word must be studied. Remember the Bereans. Hear how these Jews came to the word of God. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And can you imagine a group coming to Paul saying, oh, you said this. Mm, I just read this yesterday in Second Chronicles. Hmm. Kind of sounds like what's being said here is different from what you said. Or, ah, what was said here in 1 Chronicles. It perfectly matches everything that you talked about here. They came with eagerness. They came with questions. They came with conversations ready and on their lips to to talk about the Word of God because it was precious to them and because the Lord of the Word was precious to them. Not only must it be studied, as I mentioned earlier, it must be meditated upon. Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. The picture in this verse is that of a cow chewing its cud over and over, vomiting it back up, eating it again and again and again, chewing it. Well, lastly, as we look at Jesus' word, we look at Jesus' house. As we are a people called by his name to be holy, we are called to live in a certain uh, way in holiness. As we take in his word, as we value it, as we study it, meditate on it, seek to apply it, something will inevitably happen to us. We will become, in ever-increasing ways, that holy people that he has gathered to himself, that holy people that he is worthy of. Listen to what Paul says about holiness for the life of the believer. He says in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13, This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. Believer, write that over your life. This is the will of God for me. My sanctification, my being set apart for him, my being cut off from all others and set apart to him. But he goes on, the author of the Hebrews says this in chapter 12, verse 14. He says, strive for peace with everyone and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we are to be a holy people. This is the will of God for our lives. But this holiness must be pursued desperately. We can't afford in any way to see it as optional. For all who see holiness before the Lord, I mean, out of love for him, not a Pharisee's duty, but a believer's love, if we leave this out, we will not see the Lord. That is a good warning. That is a fair warning. That is a gracious warning to the covenant people of God. Well, tonight, as we think about Psalm 93, we think about this Lord. Remember, He reigns forever. He reigns over the floods, the nations, and your floods. He reigns over all of them without exception. He reigns in faithfulness and truth. Believer, trust Him. Trust Him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Sovereign Lord, we ask that you would sanctify this little psalm to our souls tonight. And the words that have accompanied in this sermon Give us grace to adore you, to rest in your reign, to trust you at all times, even when the floods swell up against us and seem to chase you out of view. Oh Lord, help us to see you, see you enthroned above all things and to see you as the mighty one that you truly are. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.